welcome to Streaming Into the Void, where we discuss all the streaming news for the week ending May 27th, 2023. This week, David Zaslav drinks champagne at the Cannes Film Festival as Hollywood burns. I'm Kim Hollis, and I've been told to say that I deserve every gift I get in life. Especially the Haunted Mansion stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Especially the Haunted Mansion stuff. With me are Tim Brighty, content creator and gamer, recently removed from Disney+. And no one can prove otherwise. (laughs) (laughs) Also, David Mumpower, author of Disney Demystified, streaming media analyst, and wanting to say... Now is the time to be proud, everyone. Congratulations on knowing who you are, and I'm so, so happy for you. Are you dying? (laughs) i mean technically we all are (laughs) and the podcast is produced and edited by raul burial who's mourning the loss of his netflix divorce is all fun and games until netflix charges you for password sharing and your ex-wife cancels your account how many relationships are surviving because of the custody of the streaming service (laughs) (laughs) it really makes you think Warner Brothers Discovery's new streaming service, Max, launched this week, and it went about as well as you'd expect. Hey, Kim, we tried using Max this week. How'd that go? It went bad. Really bad. Like, super annoyingly bad. So just to be clear, here's what happened. A long time ago, HBO Max launched, and when it launched, the complaints were it was basically unusable on several services, especially Roku. That was a problem that followed HBO Max around for the first year. So there was a time in early 2022 where they were like, hey, everyone, look, we have finally fixed our app. That's right. HBO Max works perfectly. Now, just because they wanted to get rid of HBO in the title, they broke the app again. And what I mean by that is they started from scratch on Max, which isn't any different in terms of user experience, save for the fact that it's much, much worse, much worse. And oh, by the way, there's only a tile for HBO. There isn't a tile for Discovery, which was the whole point of this thing. If you want to find Discovery content, you have to search for it. This is one of the worst redesigns, reboots, whatever terms you want to use, we've ever actually tracked. It never should have happened. And that's before we factor in what happened with the writers, which was an abomination. So, yeah, if you had the HBO Max app on a phone or tablet, it didn't simply just drop an update and poof, now it's Max. You had to get an entirely new app. That, what? Really? This is what we're doing? I'm going to say this again because it's important. David Zaslav is 63 years old, and he takes all his marching orders from John Malone, who is 82 years old. Boomers are deciding how streaming works for the HBO product, which we're now calling Max because apparently HBO is too smart for David Zaslav and John Malone. We have the oldest people on the planet trying to decide on tech, and it's going about as well as it should. Yeah, it's been a pretty typically bad week for Warner Bros. Discovery CEO David Zaslav. It started last weekend with an ill-advised commencement address at Boston University where Zaslav was booed and heckled with shouts of, pay your writers. But don't feel too bad for Zaslav as he'll be throwing a lavish party at Khan to celebrate Warner Brothers' 100th anniversary where he'll surely take comfort in Heidi Klum's bosom. Okay, so it's role is going to get canceled this week. Uh, there's actually a hilarious story going around about one of Zaslav's behaviors at a party. Apparently, a reporter who was invited on the boat tried to ask Zaslav questions. Zaslav made no indication that he wasn't interested in asking questions, but then had the guy followed by bodyguards anyway, which tells you a lot about how many shadows David Zaslav is seeing. He is basically the Vladimir Putin of the streaming world. Yeah, the CEO of Discovery has always wanted to be a big Hollywood mogul. When he finally got the chance, he leapt at that opportunity. And you could see immediately when the Warner Brothers and Discovery merger happened, he was doing interviews and doing photo shoots that made him look like he was a 
an old school 1940s Hollywood executive. This is what he wants. He's having parties at con and doing commencement addresses. Do you think the CEO of Discovery would have been invited to do a commencement address? No, he's the big Hollywood mogul now. Now, was it smart for him to have done a commencement address when he's in the middle of a strike and honestly is the poster child for everything that is wrong in Hollywood right now? No, not a good idea. But he is relishing every moment and he just... No, Mr. Burns, they're saying Burns. <laughs> That's right, folks. You can no longer use HBO Max because a guy wasn't liked enough at parties. It's not really that simple, but there's still the kernel of truth to it. And Tim, that's not even the only debacle going on, is it? Oh, God. Uh, so once you were able to use the service, one of the first things people noticed was in the credits of shows and movies. So... Writers and directors, instead of being credited individually as you know, directed by and, or written by, they were all listed under the collective title of creators. WBD immediately backtracked on this, blaming it on something called a technical oversight. But holy crap, way to piss off the writers who are already on strike and the directors who, by the way, have a contract that expires at the end of June and are also starting to talk about a strike. Thank you, Streaming Into the Void contributor. Hey. <laughs> What? Contributor. It's nice as far as you know. Look, this was a very simple attack by the people in charge of Max. They're going to say otherwise now because it boomeranged back on them, but they were sending a message of how replaceable they considered all of the talent. And this backfired on them so quickly and so aggressively that within 12 hours, they were going, whoops, whoops, nope, nope. It was a complete accident. But they're also adding that it'll take two to three months to fix, which means it wasn't an accident. It was a feature, not a bug. And then it turned out everyone hated the feature. This goes back to something that Tim mentioned just a moment ago, where it's not just the HBO Max app with additional content in it. They have developed a brand new app. The problem is that Warner Brothers and Warner Brothers Discovery is not very good at making apps. When they first launched the HBO Max app, it was terrible and took them a long time to make it just right. And now that they have an app that is just right, they've decided, no, no, we're going to start over and create a brand new one. I saw the same thing on my Google TV, where on May 23rd, when Max launched, I figured I could just click on the HBO Max app and I would get Max. No, I had to install a new app. I literally have HBO Max and Max on my TV right now. And my experience with Max has been terrible. Yes, Mr. Zaslov, I tried to watch content on your streaming service just last night, three days after the launch of your new platform, and it was unusable. The buffering on the content made it so I could not watch your content. I did try. I paused. I played. I exited the app and returned. But I can still go back to HBO Max and watch content on that. This is clear indication that their technical people, probably due to layoffs and budget cuts, cannot keep up and have delivered a less than optimal experience. So I'm going to disagree with you right there. I don't think this is on the technical team. I think that this is just the underlying issue. There isn't communication because there isn't a grand vision for any of this. They're making it up as they go along. And that's when mistakes happen without a plan, without infrastructure, without organization. You can't expect anyone involved with this to do their job correctly because they don't know what their assignment is. It is as simple as that. On top of everything else, we found out that they specifically decided not to optimize content for Discovery Plus slash HBO Max joint users because they realized there were only 4 million of them and they decided it was easier just to not worry about 4 million current customers because they weren't a large enough group to worry about. 4 million customers they're alienating because, eh, that'd be work and we don't want to work on that. Work costs money, you know. Honestly, it feels like we're presiding over the collapse of Hollywood and there are, and here are these morons partying it up in con like nothing's wrong. With the writer's strike in full swing, studios have started enacting force majeure clauses and productions are shutting down across the country. Yeah, and they didn't even think this through because what's happened is there are a bunch of productions in California, and I mean roughly half of them, that just realized that force majeure is going to mean that the elimination of tax credits. You know, those things that movie productions fight so hard to 
forget that are tens of millions of dollars of discounts and budgets, yeah, those are going to expire because of the writer strike. So they're having to beg state officials to keep them anyway. This is the type of thing nobody thought through ahead of time, and it just shows how big the scramble is. And so in the spirit of the ongoing collapse of Hollywood, IndieWire actually put out a list this week of the 76 movies and series that have been pulled from Disney Plus and Hulu. You're going to recognize some of them as we mentioned many of them in the What's New in Streaming segment, some of them as recently as just a few weeks ago. I watched a number of these shows and movies and knowing that they have been pulled maybe to never be seen again is really, really depressing. The other thing I'll add here is that because of the exclusivity, a lot of these titles weren't actually available for sale anywhere, which is a different model than we're used to in the past. You know, in the days of VHS and DVD, if you found out they were doing a closeout on something, you could just buy a copy. With streaming, if it's not available for sale anywhere and it vanishes, you can't get it anymore. And so I had to use something called Play on Cloud this week to save some of my favorite Disney Plus programming that I know is going away. And it has just been not just me doing this that because I think three of the top five most downloaded shows on Play On this week were actually Disney Plus titles that were about to go away forever. So there was demand here. There just wasn't the right demand or something. I don't know. So I'm not going to go through all 76 of them, but I am going to mention a few. At the top of the list is going to be Artemis Fowl, which, David, you predicted this one. It was a bomb from the start. Disney intended for this one to go to theaters, but it turned out to be so awful it went to streaming instead. It's just another failed attempt by Disney to launch their own Harry Potter young adult franchise. The sooner they bury this pile of poo, the sooner someone else could try again. Yeah, for sure. It's a well-loved book series, and I feel like there was an opportunity that they missed. Yeah, the movie movie itself was a disaster project and we knew this all along. It got shelved. It, there were all kinds of issues. So this was an experiment rather than something they expected to work. Early in the pandemic, they thought, hey, we've got programming we can release on Disney Plus and we can see how it does. And we've learned three years later that the answer was people aren't going to watch something if it's on Disney Plus just because it's free unless they hear it's good or unless Disney convinces them otherwise. And one of the underlying themes you're going to hear in the podcast for the next few weeks is going to be the struggle with marketing this content. And Raul, a lot of the titles you're about to mention, that was the issue, wasn't it? Yeah, honestly, if it wasn't promoted, how were you supposed to know that this was even on the streaming service? I feel there was content here that people would have watched if they only knew it was there. Yeah, I know that you talked up something called the Mysterious Benedict Society. What was that? So that's another failed attempt by Disney to adapt a popular young adult book series. I watched the first season of this. There was two seasons, so Disney clearly thought the first season did well enough to get a second, but evidently now they feel otherwise and they've pulled both seasons again, presumably never to be seen again. I actually saw a tweet from Kristen Schaal, who starred in this show, basically asking the Twitter universe, how do I save a copy of this? Because I would like to show it to my kids someday and it's going to disappear probably forever. Even people involved in this don't even know how to deal with the disappearing of their projects. That's heartbreaking. Another title, and I'd say this one was higher profile, was Pistol, which aired on FX and Hulu in 2022. This is Danny Boyle's miniseries uh, dramatization of the rise and fall of the Sex Pistols. I think it got a lot of press. This one actually people were aware of, and yet Disney thinks that it doesn't warrant staying around. There's B.J. Novak's satire anthology, The Premise. That one just never really seemed to get any traction. A lot of people had trouble understanding just what it was, but it had, as an anthology, it actually had a lot of stars in it, but no one watched. Because a lot of people had trouble understanding what it is. The same with Pistol. People right now are going, I've never heard of either of these. And that is on the streaming service, which has a responsibility to show people what their new titles are and why they're worth watching. I feel like this is an ongoing conversation we keep having. And sometimes it comes up more in what's new in streaming when something shows up and we missed it the prior week because there was no marketing for it. These streaming services are doing a very poor job of marketing themselves and the shows and movies that they have available. And as someone who works in marketing, it's painful to watch it. This drives us crazy and we will find out after the fact, most recently with the second Shazam movie, that something has already debuted on streaming and we're just looking around going, how did that happen? And here's the oddity about the stuff we're mentioning. A lot of it 
got second seasons, which means there was enough viewership that they thought we can justify another investment in this. And now after the fact, they're going, no, we absolutely should not have invested in this. Who was right? Who was wrong? When were they right? When were they wrong? I just don't understand any of the decision making we're discussing. So one series that actually got a lot of marketing was Why the Last Man. It's the adaptation of Brian K. Vaughn's comic book series that took forever to get to the small screen and then was unceremoniously canceled after one season after critics roasted it. This one, it's no surprise that everyone just wants to forget it, but it is maybe one of the highest profile titles to be scrubbed from the Disney streaming platforms. And we've been together, let's say 23 years now. Was Why the Last Man the biggest disappointment of our relationship? in terms of viewing? It was just so disappointing and we didn't really even finish it because it was such a disappointment after faithfully reading that series and loving it. We read everything. Brian K. Vaughn, who is the author of the comic books, I mean, everything. And we couldn't finish Why the Last Man, which tells the entire story. Stargirl was a 2020 movie and had a sequel, Hollywood Stargirl, in 2022. It starred America's Got Talent star Grace Vanderwall, who played a quirky teenager. I watched the first one of these movies with my kids. It was charming, although a little bit meandering. We never did get around to watching the second one, although I imagine given the time we would have, and now, now we can't. The Princess was a 20th century movie that played on Hulu in 2022. I have mentioned this one on the podcast. Joey King from the Kissing Booth franchise and Bullet Train starred in this movie as a medieval princess who has to fight her way through a castle to save her family from an unwelcome suitor. It strangely played a lot like a video game. It was a very unusual movie and the storyline was very cliched, but there's a lot of action in it and has a very strong female lead. Here's the thing about that. Bullet Train came out in August of 2022. This movie came out on Hulu on July 1st, 2022. There was an opportunity to say, hey, you like her in this. You should be watching this, which is free on Hulu right now. And they didn't take that. All these things we're discussing have missed opportunities. This was quite possibly the biggest one. Rosaline is another one I mentioned on the podcast, another 20th century movie that played on Hulu in 2022. Conversely to The Princess, this one was a delight. Rosaline, played by Booksmart's Caitlin Deaver, just wants to live her own life, but her father keeps trying to marry her off to the next available suitor. Rosaline's life is thrown into turmoil when her cousin Juliet arrives and falls in love with Rosaline's ex, Romeo. It is just delightful, hilarious, and has a great ending. I really like this movie. I could see myself watching this one over and over again, but that's not going to happen. Is the ending Rosalind laughing when she finds out what happens to Romeo and Juliet? <laughs> oh Caitlin Deaver's a delight. So yeah, that is a real shame. The Right Stuff was a miniseries retelling the novel by Tom Wolfe. It just never really caught fire. I had a panic moment this week where I had to look to Kim and go, oh God, did I finish watching that? Because I have seen all of the episodes of The Right Stuff. I couldn't actually remember if I finished watching the last two. This was a really high profile cast and it was enjoyable enough, but they stuck it on the National Geographic tile. And Raul, what have we learned about the National Geographic tile this week? No one clicks on the National Geographic tile. A stunning number of the titles we're discussing, a stunning percentage relative to what was available, came from National Geographic. People apparently don't pull up Disney Plus to learn. Even that Jeff Goldblum <laughs> series is gone. Wait, which Jeff Goldblum series? You remember the world according to Jeff Goldblum. Disney Plus launched with this. This was one of their highest profile titles at launch. Wait, wait, wait. The show that they basically built Disney Plus marketing around at the start is gone from Disney Plus in three years? Oh, yeah. Two seasons. Gone. Wow. The Mighty Ducks Game Changers and Turner and Hooch were two reboots of Disney 80s films that never caught on with audiences, although the Mighty Ducks did get two seasons as well. We still love you, Lauren Graham. And Big Shot, not good enough to survive the axe, but viewers of the series about a disgraced basketball coach played by John Stamos, forced to coach high school girls basketball, really loved the series. Including yeah. me and David. And John Stamos is amazing in this series. And it is a true 
shame that it is not available. I'm actually going to have to be very precise with my wording here because then I'll be the one who gets canceled. But what I'll have to say is there's a theme with all the titles we're talking about, or at least a significant portion of them, where female empowerment programming seems to have taken the biggest hit here. And that's an indictment of how Disney Plus is marketing itself to female viewers. I appreciate that maybe they needed to market these more, but if someone became aware of the show, Can you imagine a show that's in Korean becoming as big as Squid Game was? Offhand, most viewers would have thought, oh, this one's in Korean. Subtitles? No, I'm not going to watch it. But you market it right and people start talking about it and thinking, oh, wow, this is pretty good. I could appreciate that initially some people might have thought, why would I want to watch the Mighty Ducks Game Changers about a mom who coaches a kid's hockey team or Big Shot about a girl's basketball team in high school? But if you watched it, you'd get it. It's good, but you need to get the word out. And it just didn't happen. And of course, finally, there's Willow. You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who liked this reboot of the 1980s Lucasfilm sword and sorcery adventure. Although Willow creator Jonathan Kasdan says he's not bothered by it. He's the same guy who said that he wasn't worried that a second season wasn't on deck at Disney Plus yet. Now his promise that he's still working on a second season almost sounds like a threat. And it's not like Disney Plus was, say, a decade old and, and these are just some of the older content. Some of these shows didn't even exist a year. We touched on this last week. Willow did didn't even exist for six months before they took it off the service. That is mind-boggling that, that this is happening. Yeah, there was a Pentatonix Christmas special that has been pulled. I kind of get it. I can see how maybe you only want this content online for a certain amount of time, and then you take it out, and then you put it back in. Because so long as the content exists on the streamer, you have to pay the creators of that content residuals. It may still be that some of this content returns at some point. Could the Pentatonix Christmas special come out every December? That seems really honestly highly likely. Other shows... Why would they ever bring back Big Shot or the Mighty Ducks Game Changer? I think our best bet at this point is that Disney is going to try to license these out to like the Roku channel or something, and maybe you'll find it there every once in a while. Yeah, I don't believe these have gone away forever, at least not the ones that would have any appeal whatsoever. I think they're just going to wind up on fast services, which is what has happened with most of the former HBO stuff. And all this sucks, but say what you will about Max and Disney Plus, at least they're not narking you out for password sharing, right, Tim? Well, yep, not yet, especially uh, with Netflix finally started the password sharing, account sharing crackdown. They know who you are and where you are. So they can tell if uh, your account's getting used in multiple locations, and they're going to start charging you extra to do that at a full $7.99 a month for each, quote, household outside your original household. And the thing we should keep in mind about this is as recently as 2000. 2017, Netflix was gleefully tweeting, we want you to share your password. Please share your password. Love is sharing a password and that tweet is still up from a few years ago. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. And yeah, meanwhile, I get I get an email from, from Peacock this week saying, please stream our service on multiple accounts at the same time. Up to four different people can be watching. Please. I got that too. <laughs> We really need to say our numbers are higher. Won't you help? Peacock's really good at countering bad moves by other streaming services. They poked Max this week as well with with a joke, which honestly we made on this podcast a few weeks ago ourselves. I'm trying to think of the last time I actually opened the Netflix app. But now that my account's been canceled, all I want to do is open Netflix. (laughs) I guess I'll just have to go visit Galactic Star Cruiser instead. Well, we've proven this week that people love scarcity. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, they suddenly decided there was interest in these shows disappearing and that whole Star Wars uh, hotel thing. Yeah. I'm telling you that we, in marketing and advertising, we talk about creating a sense of urgency. Here it all is writ large. Okay, Tim, I know we have box office stories to talk about this week. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's Memorial Day weekend, so this is supposed to be a big box office weekend. And we started off with last week, we had Fast X, which came out with uh, $67 million for the weekend. Not great. 
but you know, it, it was something. But this weekend, we have The Little Mermaid, the live action adaptation from Disney. On, it started out 10.3 million on Thursday, which led to a 38 million Friday. And that's in lineup for going to be a huge weekend. And Fast X, uh, it's going to be at 100 million as of Saturday. But you have to wonder, this this franchise has expired. Now, we, we stated last week, these movies exist because of overseas box office, but the China box office isn't really backing that up now is, anymore, is it, David? No, as a matter of fact, you'll find any number of headlines. Look, we've known for a while now the international market hasn't recovered from the pandemic yet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is probably the best example of it. Fast 10 got made because the previous films had absolutely destroyed the international box office, especially China. Apparently, the one thing Americans and Chinese can agree on is the thrill of turbocharged vehicles. So that's where we're at right now with this, where China is looking at Fast 10 going, another one? No, no. And hilariously, Vin Diesel, after swearing this was the last one and begging The Rock to appear in it for that reason, is now happily talking about Fast 11 and Fast 12. And at this point, the box office returns are diminishing so much, there's going to be a question about the validity of that. I mean, there is. This is a free fall type of thing we're witnessing overseas. I'm delighted to see that The Little Mermaid is doing well at the box office. I think it speaks a lot to the question of children's content. We saw that the Super Mario Brothers movie did exceptionally well because there just isn't that much content for kids and families at the box office. And before that, we saw that with the Puss in Boots sequel. You need content for kids and families at the box office, and there just isn't that much. The only real competition for The Little Mermaid right now is, in fact, the Super Mario Brothers movie, which has been around for weeks and is probably going to be hitting streaming sometime soon. So it's almost clear sailing for The Little Mermaid. Yeah, this is something Disney has done in the past. This is the same Memorial Day weekend release strategy they used with Aladdin, which earned, I'm not looking at my notes right now, I want to say it was like $116 over four days. The Little Mermaid is going to beat that, and this comes on the heels of tracking being wrong as usual. We've been talking about this since the day's rush hour. It's an ongoing thing, and we can't get anybody to listen. Tracking is almost always low on anything that has an African-American lead, because for whatever reason, tracking services just aren't willing to survey the audience most likely to visit these films. So they were saying tracking was 60 and then it was 80. And now it's going to turn out to be possibly as high as 130 million in four days. And on top of that, the reviews are very good and the audience scores are exemplary. Yeah, it's going to come in ahead of Aladdin, which actually came in with 116 million over four days for Blue Will Smith. Uh, That first Friday was 31.3 million. So Little Mermaid's already ahead of that with 38. Yeah, and Little Mermaid also got an ace cinema score. It has reached its target audience and they are delighted. And Kim and I will talk about this at the end of the podcast, but it was just a wonderful cinematic experience and we highly recommend it. Take that, haters. Yep. And I even, I was uh, downtown this morning and was actually very delighted to see two little girls wearing their Little Mermaid 2023 t-shirts. It was very adorable. All right, Tim, thanks for the uh, box office discussion. Let's go ahead and move into the ratings. We're going to look at the Nielsen streaming ratings for Monday, April 24th to Sunday, April 30th, 2023. Um, A pretty math week, I can call it. There's a couple interesting things to mention here. We do have some new stuff, but it's mostly stuff we've seen before in returning shows, but let's see what we have. Um, The top show, of course, is still The Diplomat. Eight episodes, 1.4 billion minutes. Still holding very solidly. A returning show in second, Firefly Lake. Uh, 1.1 billion minutes for 26 total episodes. Uh, This is the second half of the second and final season. Seven more episodes that arrived on the 27th. Yep, last of it. Yes. We don't have to talk about it after this. But yeah, we don't really like Catherine Heigl. The first nine episodes of the season premiered in December and we saw it return then. And then because that's the thing now with the shows that they know people will, will watch, the second half arrived in April and here it is again and it'll probably get a bump next week and then hopefully disappear forever. New or returning in third, Sweet Tooth. 16 episodes, 924 million minutes because the second season arrived on the 27th. Yeah, I see this one very similarly to Shadow and Bone. I feel both Sweet Tooth and Shadow and Bone were supposed to be bigger than they were. And then their second seasons, I also feel, didn't get the marketing they deserved. And yet they both got a very strong core audience that has propelled them into the streaming 
being top five. I don't remember if we saw this in the first season. It, that was June 2021. So it has been a while. But yeah, the, enough interest still in the second season and actually already been renewed for a third, which will be the last season. So we, we will see more of this in, in, in the future whenever they get around to making it. And this is just a fantasy series with a fairly wild post-apocalyptic premise. Ted Lasso is up to fourth, 795 million minutes for 29 total episodes. I again attribute that to the third season episodes being interminably long. More on that later, but I'm, I am happy to see it here. That's a pretty solid number and it still has another month of episodes to go in these ratings. So I'm curious if we can get to a billion as it reaches a, a conclusion. The most recent episode was 76 minutes. So I think that it definitely will happen. Mm-hmm. Another returning show in fifth, Working Moms. This is the Canadian sitcoms, 83 episodes, 645 total minutes. The seventh season arrived on Netflix during this ratings week. That's right. Seventh and final season. And final. Yes. This, so this airs on TV in Canada and then like shows up on Netflix, I think. Yes. Uh, similar to Shit's Creek. Okay. Yeah. We've seen it before when the new season arrived on Netflix in the past, but yep. But more than anything for a show most Americans probably have never heard of. Uh, the Night Agent down to six, 560 million minutes. Uh, the Mandalorian, the typical post-season finale, dropped to 498 million minutes in seventh. Beef still here in eighth, 459 million minutes. Prime Video's Marvelous Mrs. Maisel in ninth, 457 million minutes, 39 total episodes. That will also hang around possibly for the next month as its fifth and final season completes, which I think just dropped yesterday as we record this. And something new in 10th, John Mulaney, Baby J, uh, 379 million minutes for, well, one episode. It's treated as a stand-up special, but I, I had read it was more like a movie, but I guess he uh, does have enough of a following, I think, to just scrape onto the, to the original chart. Yeah, we don't get a lot of stand-up specials on this list. I think the last and maybe the only other one we've ever seen here was the Chris Rock special. We got Chris Rock, we got the Dave Chappelle, and we've had Jim Gaffigan. So yeah, okay. you, you basically have to be like the A-plus list comedian type to make it here. And this is one of the few shows on Netflix that I've actually spoken to people offline about. So this one has definitely gotten itself an audience. Yeah, somehow he's he's become pretty popular with, I guess, the internet, really. So I'm, I'm not surprised that he he got enough uh, interest in his latest latest special to make it here. This actually appeared on the 25th, so it is most of the week. So we probably won't see it again, but it, it is nice to see that it makes it because these always have an uphill battle as they, as you see, are literally one episode. Movies is an incredibly sorry chart led by Whitney Houston. I want to dance with somebody, which we we saw a premiere last week, 578 million minutes. I'm not surprised that it took a jump because it's with the first full week of its availability. As a side note, the movie that led last week, The Snowman, gone entirely. That's how much it, it dropped from, <laughs> from its from its debut because these, these numbers are very, very weak as we go down this list. Yeah, we were joking last week about how this movie failed at the box office and that we wondered whether it would do well on Netflix, which is basically the equivalent of people being able to watch it for free. This is just an okay performance at best, isn't it, Tim? Yeah, this this is a number that that often finds itself, you know, in in maybe maybe second or third on, on normal weeks. We do see it, you know, with close to a, to a billion minutes and this is a full week so not too great for a movie that was Oscar bait that failed miserably and was not well received we do have some new stuff though that's actually from this year multiple on this chart actually and second from Disney Plus Peter Pan and Wendy 477 million minutes this is uh, like a live action adaptation of Peter Pan I know we definitely talked about it that's right live action adaptation of Peter Pan by uh, Disney Mm-hmm. And this is just a three-day number. It came out on the 28th. Mm-hmm. But even so, this doesn't really hint that it's going to do a lot better. And given the reviews, that's not super surprising. Was this always headed for Disney Plus or was it considered for a theatrical release? And then they just decided maybe, maybe as a result of, of COVID, they decided just to save it for streaming. They actually have been working on this since 2016. So when they were working on 2016, there wasn't even, not even necessarily the idea of Disney Plus. Streaming, right, yeah. So, you know, it kind of adapted over the time, but it it has been targeted for streaming for a while now. And I think they knew it wasn't that great. Okay, because I I know the timings are different, of course, between these ratings and box office, but I do find it funny. We have the Little Mermaid adaptation crushing it in theaters, but this Peter Pan adaptation doing okay on streaming. Yeah, and there's actually a connection there, if you didn't know. Tinkerbell is played by Yara Shahidi, who was on Blackish and then Grownish. Halle Bailey, who plays the Little Mermaid, basically got her start in Hollywood on Grownish. So you could tell that Disney just loves to cast its own reliable actors. Oh, that's cool. And I think you've said it one point they have like a whole strategy of 
live action adaptations just in the pipeline, right? Yeah, they, they do. Depending on who you believe, there's as many as 15. It's probably not that. I mean, some of them are like Aladdin 2 with okay. what happened with Will Smith. That doesn't seem that likely <laughs> right now. But, you know, they're definitely keeping it. And the other thing is, this is just how Disney does things now. They find a performer they like and they'll just put them in Pixar. They'll put them in Star Wars. They'll put them in Disney. Uh, and, you know, they'll put them in Marvel. And I was talking about this last night. Ray Stevenson recently passed away. He's best known for his work on Rome, but Marvel used him, Star Wars used him, Disney just loved Ray Stevenson. The same is true with the cast of Gronish and Halle Bailey. We're not really talking about her when we talk about The Little Mermaid. She is a superstar today. I mean, like mm -hmm. her life changed this week and it's kind of just fascinating to watch these things unfold because Kim and I have been watching her since, gosh, Kim, what do you think she was, 20? Maybe not even 20. Yeah, that, that's cool. I, I, I like hearing what's upcoming with Disney, especially their their long-term plans for their for their IPs. We knew once the first couple did did well, they were just going to churn out live action remakes as soon as they could, really. Yeah, and that's the thing about it. It comes with inherent risk. I mean, we mm. know about the criticisms of The Little Mermaid, but it's not just that particular criticism. I wrote an A-plus review of The Little Mermaid this week, and one of the things I said about it is I am terrified about the upcoming live action version of Lilo and Stitch because if it breaks Kim's heart, it's going to crush me. <laughs> I mean, it really will. And so you're always taking that risk when you start with something like this. All right. So, yeah, I'm curious to see what that does next week. I didn't check if a big movie is going to hit the list, but I would expect it to be the, the top film next week then with just a three-day number here. All right. Something else new in third, back to Netflix, aka 295 million minutes. So after the top two, the numbers fall apart and just wait till we get to hit the bottom of the list. Uh, this is a French action film that we we def I had to go back and double check. Yeah, we talked about it. Yeah, I didn't think anything really stood out about it, especially since I didn't recall that we had mentioned it, but it drew enough interest to draw that many viewers after it's we were on the 28th. So again, just a three-day number here. I feel like we're hitting that time in the schedule where every single week we were like, eee, there's just not very much. Oh yeah. <laughs> we, we had some really crappy weeks of what's new. We're like, wait, that's, that's it. That's what's coming. Nothing. Okay. But yeah, some of these shows managed to, to make the, the chart. Uh, Moana is in fourth, 238 million minutes. So you can, you can tell that's kind of like the dividing line. Like, did you do better than Moana? Okay. Then maybe you did. Okay. If not, this is, then we're hitting the bottom of the the ratings barrel here. Right. That's about the Moana number we expect every week. Mm -hmm. And the question is whether Moana makes the charts. This week, Moana's fourth. Yeah, sometimes, oh. it, do sometimes it doesn't. Right. And then here it's in fourth. So we, we hinted last week was bad. This week might be worse. But yeah. And uh, speaking of live action remakes, there will be one of Moana. Of course. Why not? Oh, the, oh the, wait, The Rock's going to play play the same role, right? Did yes. you already claim dibs on that? Yeah. Okay. And fifth from Netflix, A Tourist's Guide to Love, $220 million minutes for this romantic comedy that actually premiered on the 21st so this is a full week not great but it it does apparently star rachel lee cook so i i liked her uh in six the second apple tv plus program we've ever seen ghosted 181 million minutes this is what it's what it took for to get a second apple tv title uh, chart was just terrible terrible weeks of ratings uh in seventh <laughs> in Kanto from disney plus eighth cocaine bear from peacock 147 million minutes which by the way as much as it breaks my heart to say is dying quickly it's pretty good for peacock though that's the thing it'll come back oh, oh, oh we'll see it again in a few months service. yes yeah. and, yes again hold that thought for about three more months and then it'll suddenly be the number one movie on netflix prime videos ticket to paradise 142 million minutes that's also been here for a few weeks and new intent so peacock gets two movies on the list champions 137 million minutes this is a sports comedy starring woody harrelson that i did not realize at the time was a theatrical release back in oh earlier this year okay that's right oh okay no i do remember now i think it was uh i wondered what it was when it, i saw it on the box office chart for that for that week and the other thing i want to say here is this is legitimately one of the lowest numbers we've ever seen to actually make the top 10 at mm -hmm. 137 7 million. This concept feels like The Ringer, but a lot more heart. He's coaching developmentally disabled and people with intellectual disabilities. Acquired is 10 shows we have, of course, seen before. Once again, led by Better Call Saul, 968 million minutes for 63 episodes. Last week, we saw it return to the chart as the final season's episodes arrived on Netflix. Other than that, it's much of the same. We still have the HBO Max titles and we can still call them that because they don't change. On, they technically won't change on the ratings for another month. You know, Succession, Big Bang Theory, South Park, you know, but it's all the usual standbys, Cocomel and Bluey, NCIS, Grace Anatomy. Three titles for HBO Max this week. That's pretty good. Yeah, it is. And then I keep forgetting that I should make a bigger deal of Succession because that's actually a current show, which I think that will also end this week. 
Correct. Okay. Yeah. 568 million minutes. I'll throw that number in there. 35 total episodes. Yeah. Not the most exciting week in, in ratings. That was uh, a couple of interesting things. I, I guess my prediction for next week is uh, Peter Pan and Wendy will be the top movie. Oh, we are getting that uh, Bridgerton spinoff show. So that'll probably be the top original series. But yeah, that's a kind of a math week in ratings. All right. Thank you, Tim. In our green lights and cancellations this week, Four Seasons is the new Three Seasons and Out at Netflix as the mother and daughter drama Jenny and Georgia was renewed for a third and fourth season. And they haven't said that it's the last renewal either, so it looks like uh, Netflix is pretty high on the show. They did change showrunners, and I wonder if that was part of the deal, is that the other person wasn't giving them the ideas they wanted, but the new person gave them something that felt like it could really extend the universe and make it much more viable as a long-term series, because you're right, if you look at what's happening with Virgin River, they would love to renew some shows just to have them indefinitely, but they've really, really struggle with that. This seems like one that could be an anchor for several years to come. Prime Video's spy thriller Citadel has been renewed for a second season with Joe Russo set to direct all episodes. Yeah, this was created by the Russo brothers, but I think a lot of the criticism for season one is that it didn't necessarily have the degree of action that was expected for a project by the Russo brothers. So I guess them taking the reins for directing is maybe an indication that they do want to punch up some of that action in the second season. I mean, or just make it less bland. Either way. I keep waiting for this to show up on the ratings, but turns out it did premiere April 28th, but that was just the first two episodes. And as Amazon usually does, it's a weekly release. So maybe we'll see it over the next few weeks, but I guess it's a good sign that they've already given it a renewal. At Paramount Plus, the family Stallone has been renewed for season two. Who asked for this? Nobody. People loved Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone in the 1980s. And by God, they're still alive and they're still watching. Yeah, I did just notice that the Arnold show is at number one when I pulled up Netflix earlier today. So there you go. And Paramount's premium cable network, Showtime, soon to be known as Paramount Plus with Showtime, is looking to... is looking to reboot two of its classic series, Nurse Jackie starring Edie Falco and Weeds starring Mary Louise Parker. Though I admit when I initially read the headline, I thought they were combining the two, which, you know, I was all for that. (laughs) Considering how they screwed up the Dexter reboot, canceling it after only one season, I don't (laughs) think fans of either show should be too excited. Weeds ran for like eight seasons and after like the third, it was really bad. So I don't know. What are we even doing anymore? As always, we close out the show with what's been keeping us busy over the last week. And David and I have watched a lot of things. So I'm going to just touch on a couple of them. I'll start with The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which we have now watched the entire final season for, including the final episode. And It ended in a very, shall I say, marvelous way. It is wonderful. I love Midge so much and am truly going to miss just having those characters on my TV. The Little Mermaid was a terrific adaptation of the original animated film, which did sort of start a renaissance for Disney. And I think they've done a lot of nice things in this update that brought it closer to modern times. There are like maybe a problematic thing or two in the original movie where Ariel is a little young seeming and that kind of thing. And now she's much more a force of nature. She's definitely of age and Hallie Bailey is fantastic. As David mentioned earlier in the podcast, this is a star-making role, but also Melissa McCarthy as Ursula is fantastic. And then you also have David Diggs and Aquafina voicing Sebastian and Scuttle, respectively. And they're having so much fun with it. So much fun. I'm a big fan of both of them. Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the lyrics for one of their songs. It's clearly very much designed for them. And we had little girls at the end of the movie who were dancing to the final music. It was just a delight. I'm really happy to see it doing as well as it is. Raul, how about you? Well, I suppose this week is my turn to talk about Ted Lasso. 
So I've been watching season three, and unlike David, I have been quite enjoying this season. I'm the, with you. Yep. <laughs> the longer episodes made it more challenging to digest the episodes. I used to enjoy being able to binge multiple episodes of Ted Lasso, with some season three episodes reaching one hour or longer. That's not really possible anymore. But it seems the creators did have a lot of story to tell. There are definitely some superfluous storylines. It's obvious that the whole Zava detour was tacked on, but the Nate story in particular was essential to the entire story arc of Ted Lasso. The finale is next week and was set up perfectly this week in what was surely one of the single best episodes of the series. Absolutely. So, so good. Mm -hmm. The episode had some moments that had me howling with laughter and other moments that just had me bawling. The way Ted Lasso plays on my emotions is uncanny and judging from fan reaction, this is universal. The writers of this show must be witches. I gotta say, I'm not exactly looking forward to the finale next week. I expect it'll be bittersweet, but it'll probably just leave me devastated. Who'd have thought that a stupid show about an American football coach hired to coach a soccer team in England would make me feel this way? <laughs> yeah, I, I wanted to mention last week. I even though it was a really a really short stint, I thought Zava just absolutely killed, and I kind of wanted more of him because that, that I worked, loved Zava. That, yeah, that absolutely worked for me. Yeah, that totally worked for me as as much as certain other storylines were not. So I, I kind of wish there there was more. But yeah, I'm about 20 minutes left in in the most recent episode that dropped this week, and I can already say it is by far the best episode of the season by like several miles. I'm still annoyed at certain aspects of it, but I think they clearly figured out something was not quite right with their earlier episodes when they got when they got to wrapping it up. And so, yeah, I'm, I assume we're all probably going to talk about it next week when it concludes. But yeah, I guess we'll, we'll miss this show. I guess the thing I realized was when this show came out, we forget it was fall 2020. It was the middle of the pandemic. We couldn't really still go out, go anywhere. And it was just the show we absolutely needed at that moment because it was just a hug. And they they have absolutely gotten away from that this season, especially with these longer episodes where there's just it feels like a lot of meandering and just a whole bunch of storylines for the sake of storylines. Like at one point I felt like every single player had their own like story. I'm like, okay, there's too many guys in this team. I don't need everyone to have their own plot line, even though they are all pretty good actors, but they've righted the ship, at least headed into the finale. So I'm excited for next week. The equipment manager had his own storyline. I know. <laughs> Don't get me wrong about Zava. I thought the whole thing was entertaining, but honestly, if you cut the entire Zava storyline from this season, it would not change mm -hmm. what we are watching today. All right. Thanks, Tim, for jumping in there. And David, how about you? Yeah, first of all, I want to go ahead and say that I have enjoyed the last three or four episodes of Ted Lasso quite a bit. It was earlier this season when they were making mistakes that it was harder to watch because it wasn't what any of us wants from Ted Lasso, which is happy, upbeat, and wholesome. And you can make the argument that Nate's story arc was necessary to reach the logical conclusion we know is coming. The Keeley one was not. Pretty much everything that happened with Keeley this season is indefensible and should not have really ever made it out of the writer's room. I feel pretty emphatic about that. But what we're here to do instead is celebrate things. And one of them is the 20-year revival of Clone High and... Tim and I were actually together for the season finale of Clone High Season 1, and it's been a long time coming for us, hasn't it, Kim? Yes, it has. We were on the Lord and Miller bandwagon before there was a bandwagon. It was just really a very small car at the time because we could just tell these two guys were hysterical. And watching them succeed with all of their other projects like 21, 22 Jump Street and Into the Spider-Verse, it has just been so just fulfilling and enriching to watch great talents rise like they have. And now they've returned to Clone High and changes were necessary. And they have taken a logical approach here that I kind of love, which was the very reasons Joan of Arc was wildly unpopular at the turn of the century would make her extremely popular today. And the reverse is true. All of the things that Abraham Lincoln and JFK did back then 
no longer play well with modern audiences. So they have turned Joan of Arc into the cool kid, and Abe Lincoln is now pining after her this season instead of the reverse. And the first two episodes were charming. I do take issue with something here, and what I take issue with is they changed the theme song. I totally understand why they had to do it, but oh, I miss that song so much. I loved it so. And we were just smiling for the first two episodes, just from start to finish just grinning euphorically and I don't expect that to change throughout and I'm thrilled to know that there's already a second season and it sounds like they have already mapped out four seasons of a Clone High revival and I think we have a good chance of getting it because who wants to tell Lord and Miller no right now and then there's the Little Mermaid if you want to search my name you can find a review online at Mickey blog and one of the things that I say in it that I absolutely mean is when you're adapting something you have a responsibility 35 years down the line to find the holes in the story, to correct them, to strengthen them. And the Prince character in the original Little Mermaid, which is my favorite Disney Renaissance film, that character is deadly dull. And so they worked hard to make him more watchable here, but it almost doesn't matter because the entire story hangs on only one thing, and that's do you adore Ariel as a character? And this movie... It could not do a better job of making Ariel the most winning of all Disney princesses. It really could not. I was in awe of Halle Bailey, and I am confident that we're going to see her just be a Zendaya-level star for the next several years. I mean, you look at what the people who can sing like Lady Gaga are able to do when they transition between singing and acting. I think that she is a better singer than Lady Gaga right now today already, and she's just 23. And as far as acting talent, her instincts are as good as it gets. I highly recommend The Little Mermaid, and I'm one of the people who would be hypercritical if they had messed it up because I love the original, and I'm telling you, they got it so right, and it makes me so happy. Yeah, and we already have The Color Purple coming later this year to look forward to with Halle Bailey starring. All right, you heard that, Little Monsters. <laughs> Halle Bailey, oh, no. better than Lady Gaga. No, no, don't. Like no, no. David Mumpower. No, no, I no. Don't come what I out, said. David. All right, do not come at streaming into the void social media. Just go directly to David. As long as you download the podcast, that's okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Streaming Into the Void. Please consider subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we welcome your feedback. Remember that we're on social media at Streaming Void and online at StreamingVoid.com. If you like what you're hearing, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon at Patreon.com slash Streaming Void. Be sure to watch for us again next week. 